Well, good morning. As we worship our holy God, turn in your Bible to John chapter 6. We're going to complete John 6 this week. It's amazing. Longest chapter of the New Testament. Thank you, Adam, Heather, choir, orchestra, for leading us in worship. Those last two songs really, the lyrics tell us why we're here. To come and behold him, to worship our holy God, and when we leave, that all of us would be able to say, from the very core of our being, how great thou art. And if, if that's not what you're saying when you leave, something is amiss, because that is the goal uh, of corporate worship. And prayerfully, we will see that today. If you'll look with me, we're going to be looking at verses 60 to 71. But in verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Some of the disciples had departed. They didn't like what he was teaching. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are here because we have believed and have come to know that the Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the Holy One of God. May we come to believe even stronger this morning as we consider this passage. And for those who do not yet believe, may today they put their trust in Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the strengths of Auburn University is that it still has a strong core of professors who have a Christian worldview, who have strong gospel Christian beliefs. They believe the Word of God. And we have many of them here at Lakeview, and we are so very grateful for you. But as my former boss, Al Mohler, recently wrote in his book, The Gathering Storm, it's also true that a growing number of university professors see themselves as agents of ideological indoctrination. Here's what he says. Their agenda is nothing less than to separate students from their Christian beliefs and their intellectual and moral commitments. For example, writing in the University Diaries column of higher-ed.com, a professor of English reveals this agenda. We need to encourage everyone to be in college for as many years as they possibly can in the hope that somewhere along the line they might get some exposure to the world outside their town and to moral ideas not exclusively derived from their parents' religion. 
If they don't get this in college, they're not going to get it anywhere else. Even more candidly, Bill Savage, a professor and college advisor at Northwestern University, while recognizing the and lamenting the, the strong evangelical core that still remains in the United States, tells his fellow secularists not to despair. Here's what he writes. These families, speaking of Christians, evangelicals that believe the Bible, they will continue to drop off their children at the dorms. After a teary-eyed hug, mom and dad will drive off, leaving their beloved progeny behind. And then they are all mine. Then they are all mine. Those are scary, haunting, and as a Christian, infuriating words. A growing percentage of professors, and they're not here at Lakeview, but a growing percentage of professors are delighted to have Christian parents spend 18 years with their children just to drop them off at the college campus, and then those professors are confident at that point that after four-plus years on the university campus, they will be able to have sufficient time to separate these students from their faith. And I can tell you, for those of us that go out on Thursday nights, we virtually every week, including this past Thursday night, we meet Auburn students who were raised in the church and now, having spent time on a university campus, have walked away from the faith. Of course, this isn't confined to the college campus. Not at all. The world, the flesh, and the devil, those are our three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil they come after all of us to the point that we have to recognize there is a real cost, a real significant cross-bearing cost to following Jesus as he is revealed to us in the word of God. And the question for us that we have to ask ourselves is the question that we just read in our text. The question that Jesus asked these disciples, do you want to go away as well? And the answer to that question comes down to what we really believe about the Word of God, or as Peter describes it, as the eternal words of life, the words of eternal life. Indeed, at the very beginning of this passage, we see that the words of eternal life expose the counterfeit disciple. Let me say that again. The words of eternal life expose the counterfeit disciple. Look with me in verse 60. So when, he, when many of his disciples heard it, he, he's been preaching uh, on the bread of life. That's his discourse in the previous passage. They said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, 
Notice he uses the word disciple. Most of the time in the Gospel of John, when the word disciple is used, it's referring to the 12. Uh, Jesus had 12 disciples that, he, that, that followed him and, and he, he commissioned out. But there are other places in John when the, the word disciple refers to a wider group. We saw it, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll see it in chapter 7, verse 3. You see it several times in John. And so it appears that, that John divides those who have heard Jesus' message on the bread of life into three groups. You have the Jews, most particularly the Jewish leaders who were scandalized by his message. And then you have the wider group of disciples. And then you have the twelve. Uh, the Jewish reaction to Jesus has already been revealed. Uh, we, we saw that the last couple of, of sermons. Um, and and they were scandalized by, by what he was saying. And it was birthed by unbelief. And, and the fruit of that, they, they, they grumbled. And, and they belittled him. This man's from Joseph. We know his parents. This cannot be the, uh, the son of God that he's claiming to be. But here... In verse 60 is the second group that was clearly in the crowd. They're described, notice verse 60, as disciples. What is a disciple? It's a follower. It's, it's a learner. These weren't the outright skeptics of the Jews. They were learners and followers of Jesus, kind of a loose following the real mark of a disciple, hear this, is someone who fully receives the whole counsel of God. That's the real mark of a disciple. Even when, not if, even when it stretches your theology. If it doesn't stretch your theology, you're not reading the Bible closely enough. Because our thoughts about God are fallen and they're too small. But the true disciple allows the Word of God to sanctify their thoughts about God. Indeed, discipleship, true discipleship, is tested by the teaching of the whole counsel of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, For the true disciple, the question is not, is it pleasant, but is it true? Is it true? It's clear that these particular disciples that we read about in verse 60 did not see it that way. So what did Jesus teach that they found so distasteful? Again, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They're upset at Jesus for what he had been preaching. So first of all, we could say that they were upset at the notion of the incarnation. What does the incarnation mean? God coming in the flesh. Uh, Jesus said time and time again in his bread discourse that he was the true bread that came down from heaven. And so uh, God in the flesh, that was too much for them to believe. That God has put on human flesh. Second, the necessity of his death. 
Uh, if you'll notice in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He was talking about the necessity of dying. We need a savior who will die for us. And that was a scandal then, it's a scandal now. And the reason for that, let me give you a couple. First of all, we can take no credit for our salvation if that's the case. Uh, there's no credit to be taken if Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for, in order for me to be saved. And secondly, it speaks to the fact that there's only one way to salvation. If you need a savior who was crucified, bearing our sins in his body and was raised from the grave, there's only one. And so the exclusivity of the gospel was a scandal then and it's a scandal now. J. Gresham Machen so eloquently says this, what struck the early observers of Christianity most forcibly was not merely that salvation was offered by means of the Christian gospel, but that all other means were resolutely rejected. Salvation was not merely through Christ, but it was only through Christ. In that little word, only, get that? Lay all the offense. Without that word, there would have been no persecutions. And trust me, there were a lot of persecutions, even today, even today. Without its exclusiveness, the Christian message would have seemed perfectly inoffensive to the men of that day. The offense of the cross is done away with, but so is its glory and power. I think a third thing that he was teaching that they just did not like because, again, it, it goes after their works, their human merit, is the necessity of saving faith. Notice in verse 53, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him, in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's speaking of saving faith, committed faith, where you, you are, you're forsaking all else and putting all the chips in Jesus. Saving faith, the necessity of it. Fourth, God's sovereignty and salvation and man's inability to please God in and of himself. We saw that in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then fifth, Jesus had crushed with this bread of life discourse their prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is in us all. When something bad happens, we say, what did I do to deserve this? Or if God blesses me, I, I think I did something that, that, that earned this. I deserve this. The prosperity gospel, health, wealth, prosperity. For those who just have enough faith or enough merit. They wanted a bread-making king. They wanted a fish-producing king. They wanted a king who would deliver them from their real enemy, which was not their sin, but the Roman Empire. And when they learned that Jesus wasn't that kind of king, and then when they learned 
you lose cultural capital by identifying with this man, they wanted nothing else to do with him. They did not like it. Well, notice in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling in himself, he didn't hear them, but he knew. He didn't hear them audibly, but he knew, just like he knows when you and I grumble. Just when you and I grumble, he knows. No, he knew in himself, they were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? That word offense is the word we get word for scandal. Are you scandalized by this, what I've been teaching? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's interesting that he speaks here of the ascension. So we know that when Jesus was crucified, he was raised bodily on the third day. But then, a few weeks later, he ascended publicly to the right hand of the Father. And the ascension was the culmination of Jesus' work of atonement. Uh, think about the resurrection as Jesus, you could say this, the resurrection communicates that Jesus lives and that forever. The ascension communicates Jesus reigns and that forever. And so the resurrection validated the cross. The ascension validated the cross and the resurrection. And so what he's saying here, he's asking, what will happen when the message you are rejecting right now is validated by my ascension to the right hand of the Father? That's what he's saying. He's seeing it in the future, and it's, a, it's still a year out, but it's going to happen. And then, instead of toning down the message, which we're prone to do when we're, when we're weak in the flesh, Jesus ramps it up with three, three truths. We see in verse 63, he communicates to them to the necessity of the new birth by the word of Christ. This is true of every person here today. No matter how moral or upstanding you might be. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What is the flesh? That's all that you are apart from Jesus. The flesh is no help at all. You can't save yourself. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so what he's saying here, there's only one other place he connects the, the spirit and the flesh. It's in when in John 3, when the most religious man in the history of the world, Nicodemus, came to him and, and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he said, you must be born again. He's telling that to a man that knew the Bible better than any of us. He was more committed outwardly to God than any of us. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh. That's what he told Nicodemus. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And by the way, this is our hope. This is our hope as parents with our lost children. The Spirit is the one who gives life. It, it is our hope in ministry and discipleship. It's our hope in evangelism. 
It's our hope as Christian teachers, Christian coaches, Christian businessmen, stay-at-home moms. It is our hope in missions. It is our hope in ministry. It is our hope in our own Christian growth. He then indicates the way the Holy Spirit mediates that life. Notice, the words that I have spoken, the words that they were rejecting, by the way, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. It is by the word of God that the spirit brings new birth. Peter would say later that we are born again, not by the perishable seed, but by the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, he says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. In Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. James 1, of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. And so we're born again by the word of God, but we're also sanctified by the word of God. Jesus said in John 17, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the Spirit uses the word to pierce our hearts because your heart is hard to God naturally. To change our dispositions because our dispositions are in rebellion to God. That's why it's easier to sin than to obey. Changes our inclinations. The second thing he teaches them here, the necessity of personal faith and salvation. Again, notice verse 64. But here, there are some of you who do not believe. These were disciples, remember? He is speaking to disciples, those who are following Jesus. And he says, some of you really don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who was who would betray him. Keep in mind, there is a kind, uh, and, and it is, let me just say, I'm so grateful I'm from the South so I can pick on the South. And I'm so grateful that I grew up a Southern Baptist <laughs> so that I can pick on Southern Baptists because we're family. There is a kind of loose associating, association with Jesus in the South in Southern Baptist churches that's not saving faith. You like a loose association because you like the fire insurance. And you like the fact that he may help you have a good football game or make good grades. But there's no holiness out of your commitment to Christ. It's a loose association with Jesus. That's what he's going after here. And then third, the sovereignty of God and salvation. Notice in verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He said the same thing in verse 44. In other words, if you are lost, it's on you. You can't blame anyone but you. But if you're saved, it's the grace of God. It's all of grace. And like many through the centuries... This last line was the tipping point for them. They did not like that, nor do many today. They did not like that last line. Notice in verse 66, after this. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back. That last line was too much for them. I've seen it happen time and time again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. F.F. Bruce, the, the commentator, writes, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Such is the counterfeit disciple. And Jesus, by the way, by his example here, teaches us to be willing to allow religious consumers to turn away and focus on the truly committed. Now, too many churches preach a message that the superficial believer will embrace and accept. Why? Out of fear, they won't come back. Or so that they can attract more. And we don't want anyone to go away. I hope you, don't, I hope you come back and back and back. We don't like that. But if the staying is not rooted in truth, what favor have we done to you? We've not done you any favors. The preaching of the whole counsel of God, and that's what Jesus has done, always leads to a sifting. Always. It sifts me personally. It's, it's the means by which I grow in holiness. It sifts us communally, corporately, as the people of God. It sifts out those who want to cherry-pick truths of Christ, but don't want the whole truth. Well, notice in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, so now he's turned from these would-be disciples and he's turning now to the 12 that have been following him probably at this point for two years because he's a year out from the cross. Do you want to go away as well? At some point in your Christian life, you will hear Jesus ask you that question as well. Because the Christian life is hard. It's warfare. You will be tempted to turn away. You will be. It, it'll be costly to continue with him. That's why he says, if, you, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You have to take up a, a death instrument to follow Jesus. So this question will be posed to you at some point. But here's where Peter's so helpful. Peter gives us one of the most important responses in all the scripture to a question. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. We have seen that the words of eternal life expose the counterfeit disciples but it confirms the committed disciple. It confirms the true disciple. Incidentally, that's why pulpits need to preach the whole counsel of God and not just subjects that we can uh, tailor to our own whims. It confirms the true disciple. Look with me in verse 68. Simon Peter, Peter answered him, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. We sang this morning, we confess. That's what he's saying. We confess, we believe, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Paul, or Peter here, gives us a mini course in the doctrine of Christ. Let's move through these quickly. First of all, he confesses Jesus as Lord. It's the same Lord we read when we read in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Peter's confessing Jesus as that Lord. Secondly, he's insinuating here, inferring here that Jesus is the only Savior. Notice, to whom shall we go? Peter's saying there's no other Savior. To whom shall we go? It might be hard to follow you, but the alternative is damnable. Third, Though it's the Spirit who gives life, it is Christ himself who has the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life. That's why one scholar is so perceptive when he says that Peter realized as soon as they have gone away from Christ, nothing remains for them but death, wherever they go. Death is the alternative. And then fourth... He confesses, you are the Holy One of God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, it is Yahweh who is the Holy One. And he is, in saying this, you are the Holy One of God. You are equal with God, but distinct from God. And Peter, in confessing Jesus in this way, you know what he's doing? Here's what the Spirit is doing by Peter's confession. He's wooing us. He's wooing us back in case we are tempted to turn back like these disciples. He's wooing us. Now let me say here, if you are tempted to go back, better said, when you are tempted to turn back. If the pressure of the world, and boy, it's a strong pressure because the world looks so alluring, but it's like the bait on a hook. The pressure of the world The flesh and the devil are on you, and you are tempted to turn back. I want you to think about the alternative. Think about the alternative. Think long and hard about the alternative. To whom shall you go? To whom shall you go? Ask, what leads down that road? What lies down that road if you turn back? book we've been reading as a family is Pilgrim's Progress and the Christian is is making his way to the celestial city and through many dangers, toils and snares and it's really hard to make your way to the celestial city even though it's all by grace and he's encountered by the devil And, and, and Christian is thinking to himself it would be so much easier just to turn back I wouldn't have to face the devil If I turned back, the pressure would be off. However, he thought about his armor. He remembered that he had no armor for his back. He had a breastplate. He had a helmet. He had a sword. But he had no armor for his back. 
So he realized if he turned around, if he turned away from Christ, it would only take a moment for the devil to slay him in the back. Therefore, he resolved, no matter how difficult it might be to follow Christ, it would be far worse to turn away. Retreat is impossible. Unless you've opened yourself up to the evil one. And that's how this passage ends. Notice in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. We'll spend more time with Judas in the future. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This reminds us that opposition to Jesus is satanic as well as human. So here's the question. Why would Jesus choose Judas to be one of the twelve knowing that Judas was going to betray him? Well, no one has said it better than Arthur Pink. And I'm going to move through this quickly because we're going to come to the, the table in just a moment. But these are very helpful reasons Jesus chose Judas. First of all, to fulfill the word of God. Do you know that there were prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Savior, would be betrayed by a close friend? For instance, Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So it's to fulfill prophecy. Second, Judas would provide an objective witness to the moral excellencies of Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Or what does Pink mean by that? Well, even after he betrayed Jesus, and just before he committed suicide, here's what Judas said. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He recognized the innocence of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Third, Judas reveals to us how far sin can take you. Judas is not some kind of hybrid human. He has the same nature as you and me. Sin can take you further than you could ever imagine. It will because sin's like a cancer. You don't remain stagnant with your sin. It grows like a tumor. Fourth, Judas is a warning to us how near a person can be to Jesus and be lost. And be lost. Fifth, so that we will be aware there will always be false converts among the followers of Christ. Always. The tares are infiltrating the wheat. Sixth, it reveals to us how different God's thoughts and ways are from us. He has ordained, and, and listen, every one of you, he has ordained things in your life that you don't understand. I don't understand how I was in Louisville, Kentucky for 19 years, and God brings us home to Alabama 
five months after my mom dies. I don't understand that. But I submit to God's wisdom. And it's hard to understand why Jesus would choose a betrayer to be one of his 12. Until we see the cross. And out of the most egregious betrayal in the history of the world comes the redemption of the world. Let me offer you another reason. In addition to pink, that I think kind of combines his thoughts to warn complacent Christians. To warn complacent Christians, complacent disciples. Judas' problem, he was on the front lines of ministry like us. He would have sung in the choir. He would have, he would have taught Sunday school. He would have evangelized. He'd have been on mission trips. But deep down, he was detached. He was detached. He was de- detached from Jesus. He was de- detached from Jesus and his deepest purposes for him. And the day came. The opportune day came when he betrayed him. Oh, if Judas... Oh, if we could say with Peter, when that day comes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's also what we confess at the table. It's what we as believers confess at the table. In fact, I'm so glad that we have the table today providentially because the table is a central means by which we overcome detachment from Jesus. You realize that? Some of you came this morning, just like I have come many Sundays, out of custom and ritual. But you weren't really excited about being here. Because there's a detachment that has grown in your soul. And the Lord's table is a means to overcome that detachment. For those of you who are visiting, if you are born again, you have been born again by the Spirit of God, by the gospel of Christ, and you have been baptized as a believer, and you have joined a like-minded church that believes this gospel, we invite you to partake of the table with us. So let's prepare our hearts to partake of the table, to overcome any detachment that you may be experiencing right now. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.